Mac Power Users, Episode 570, Mac Security. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I am joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am great. Uh, how how about you? Everybody good in the Sparks household? Yeah, we are. You know, the, the kids are uh, getting, well, the daughter number one just finished undergrad. So we, we're celebrating that. And great. Um, hey, I, thank you, Mac Power Users audience. You guys helped me. With your support over the years, I was able to get a kid through college without any debt. That was That's great. awesome. Now she signed up for graduate school, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to keep working. Number two just started her second quarter at UCLA, and uh, they're both home, and we're just enjoying it. You know, I mean, I'm sure they'll be gone soon enough, so we're trying to enjoy them while they're here. How about sure. you? You were good. Uh, the kids are back in virtual school, so you know the the internet connection is being taxed as ever. Because my wife is also teaching, so it's you know a lot yeah. of video calls going on. Yeah, yeah, we're good. Had a had a quiet New Year, and so far a quiet start to twenty twenty one. Yeah, I feel real motivated. I just really want to kick some butt this year, and uh, that includes making some great episodes of Mac Power Users. Yeah, I think we're starting off on a good foot. Uh, we should say, though, on more power users, the membership version of the show, which has no ads and extra content, we're going to talk about your, hopefully, your ongoing Mac experiment, where we spoke last time about your iMac Pro and what you're going to do with it, and maybe you're going to move to the M1, and so we're going to go get to chapter two of that saga in the members episode today. Yeah, I can tell you that after we recorded last week, I unplugged my iMac Pro and I went a week without it. And it was an interesting week. I'll tell I'm, you. Looking, <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing about that. All right. Um, but today the show is all about security. And, um, you know, one of the nice things about having you on the show as a host, even is your experience as a former Apple genius. And this is one where... Uh, Steven said, look, I want to take charge of the outline for the Mac security show. And gang, uh, Steven wrote a book in the outline today. <laughs> it's nine. <laughs> it's a nine page Google Doc, which is quite long for us. But there's there's a lot to talk about. And I think it's important. I mean, uh, we've spoken a lot about this over the last, you know, almost a year now. A lot of us are spending a lot of time on the Mac for everything now. It's our window to the world for a lot of people. And so as we continue to use them for work and play and everything else, I think it's important to know what security is built in. And then we're going to get to some best practices and some things that we recommend to do on top of what Apple provides. But Apple does have a really good foundation that they've built on over really over the last 20 years of Mac OS X. Yeah, and I guarantee you, if you stick with us through this episode, you're going to know a lot more about Mac security than you than you did before you started. I know a lot more than when I started this document. I mean, it was, you know, the scene in the, A Beautiful Mind where it has like all the papers up and there's push pins and red yarn yeah. going. That, that's what my studio looked like when I was preparing for this, except it was all PDFs out of Devon Think and Apple support yeah. documents. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we just got to dig in, man. We got nine pages to get through. All right. Yeah, so, so really, the beginning from the beginning of Mac OS X, that secure foundation, as I call it, has been there because right from the beginning, OS X had a lot of stuff that, that the classic Mac OS 
didn't really have. Some of it was sort of glommed on at the end, you know, Mac OS 9 and its versions, but really some basic security has been built into the Mac for a long time. You know, one thing I didn't even really write about because it's 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 a pretty slippery argument to get your hands around is the security through obscurity that the Mac is just a smaller target for people. And so there's not as much malware for it. Uh, that was definitely true in the beginning days of Mac OS X when the install base was just a fraction of what it is now. But from the beginning, because OS X was based on Next technology, had a Unix at its core, it had all of the properties ready for things like uh, app permissions. So to install an application on the classic Mac OS, like, you didn't have to do anything. You just run it. Yeah. And with Mac OS 10, you would need an admin password to install software. So software couldn't install itself behind your back. And that really goes back to kind of the foundations. I mean, when the original Mac came of age, this wasn't a concern. I mean, right. pe- people installed apps with a floppy disk, mm-hmm. a funny looking floppy disk at the time, and copying it onto their drive or even just running it from the floppy. And the whole concept of these security problems just didn't exist. So the original Mac OS grew up in an era where that was not an issue. So it totally. really was ill-equipped for it. Yeah, to- totally. That's that's what uh, what transpired. Uh, but another big thing was multiple user support. Now, Apple had sort of duct taped this to the side of Mac OS 9, but really in Mac OS 10 is where we got proper multiple, multiple user support. So that means that David and I share an iMac, and if I log in, I can't see what's in his home folder, and he can't see what's in my home folder. We have distinct permissions around our files, and that is something that wasn't true in the classic Mac OS, right? If you had a family Mac, anyone who sat down just saw everyone's data on it, and that not only opened up potential security concerns, but it also opened up uh, concerns around things like accidentally modifying or deleting someone else's documents, right? You go, oh, let me just get rid of this folder, and you don't realize that, you know, your daughter has her schoolwork in it, or your son had his soccer pictures in it, and all of a sudden you're the bad guy because you removed a folder. With multiple multiple user support, everyone had their own space, and it was uh, sort of uh, roped off from every other user. You know, it, it reminds me just how important that Unix base was, you know, to follow up on my earlier comment. I mean, the original Mac OS was not equipped for this. But then when the next guys came in and they had this Unix basis for Mac OS, it just it gave them an entirely different tool set. Right. All, a bunch of that stuff just kind of came for free with the new underpinnings that became Mac OS X. I, you know, maybe we should do a historical show at some point this year. Um, you know, just like we did one on the processors of the Mac. Yeah. Maybe we should do one on Mac OS at some point because I think uh, Mac Power users would probably be interested to kind of hear the whole story because it, it's such it's such a twisted path. The Mac, even though if you look at the Mac operating system from the original Mac, you look at the one in the current shipping version, they look very similar. It's there's so much that's different over the years. Boy, I would love to do that. All right, let, let's put a pin in that. We'll do that later this year. So Sounds good. There we go. One more thing for 2021. That's right. Uh, a big conversation in the early days was, should I run as an administrator or should I run as a standard user and then just use an admin username and password to install software? And At the beginning, I think a lot of people 
recommended you run as a standard user. I think a lot of people still recommend that today, but I think people who are like us or a lot of our audience probably just run as an administrator. I know that I surely do, yeah, uh, but that's too. been an option for a long time too. You could pick your account type. Do you think that the calculus has changed on that decision over the years? I mean, it was a much bigger deal at the beginning of Mac OS 10 than it is now, it seems like. I think it just depends on the type of user, right? I mean, if you had a, a, a child using a machine, even if you didn't use like the special parental control user account, yeah. if you just had them as a user, I would definitely have them as a standard user. Or if you had somebody maybe who was a little bit accident prone to things, but at the same time, it's a little less important now as, we, as we're going to go through this, we'll see that Mac OS itself is way more hardened against things like someone went to the library folder and deleted a bunch of stuff. Now the Mac won't boot. A lot of these sort of oopsies you could used to have as an admin user have been taken away. So, I mean, I don't freak out if I see like a, you know, like one of my handful of consulting clients, you know, if I'm in an office helping somebody with a Mac problem and they're all running as admin users, I really don't say anything about it. Yeah. The thing I always ask myself is, is this person the kind of person that would click a random box on the internet that says you need the security patch, please click this and install. Right. Because those <laughs> things are out there on the Mac. And I know a few people, uh, let's just say hypothetically, my mother-in-law who would <laughs> It's a very specific that. hypothetical. And every time I see her on a holiday, I've got to unwind some nonsense off her Mac. So yeah. uh, a person like that hypothetically would be a great candidate to make them a user because actually installing that software would be a lot harder for them. I don't think you know what a hypothetical is. That's a yeah. very specific example. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but uh, over time, Apple's done a lot to add security features to the Mac. Uh, one of the first big ones was File Vault. The first version of File Vault, File Vault came out with Panther, and it would encrypt your home folder when you logged in and when you logged out. So for a long time, and really it's still, it's kind of true today, but it's less true than it used to be. If someone just swiped your iBook off of a Starbucks table in 2003, they had your hard drive and they had your data because they could just plug it into another machine or put it on a bench and open it and pull the hard drive out. And they had everything on your drive and file vault was designed. Say, look, especially with notebooks, you may have confidential information on them. You may have photos or something and you want to encrypt that. So even if someone has your device, as long as it's not logged into your user, they can't see the contents of your home folder. And that was great. But if you think about the time it was in, it's all spinning hard drives. It's all PowerPC Macs. Uh, it was not the most performant feature. Thankfully, it was just at login and logout, but it it would take a while to do and really grind your drive into dust if you were setting it up, you know, and you had 40 gigs of home folder to deal with. I, I feel like you're being generous. It was like garbage. I mean, I remember... <laughs> I, I paid for a third party product. I forget what it was, but it wasn't cheap. It was like 150 bucks a year or something, but it had crypt in the name and hmm. somebody's going to write in, in the forum and remind me what it was, but I remember it had a blue icon, but either way I paid for encryption software that worked way better. And then, um, file vault got like a, um, an upgrade later in the process. Yeah. Uh, with OS 10 lion, it really got, a lot better it started 
encrypting your entire drive, so not just your home folder. It was real time. And at this point, some Macs were coming out with SSDs, like the, the good MacBook Air was out by this point, and it was becoming a little more common, but it was definitely more performant. And it would only encrypt when you were plugged into AC power, so it wouldn't like grind away if you were, you know, trying to use your notebook on a flight and needed the battery to last, you know, five hours. So they did some things to to make it a little easier to live with, and that's still the file vault that we have today in Big Sur. File vault is still there. It's all hidden away in the security and privacy preference pane. And I'll, I'll just because I called it garbage earlier, I will completely endorse the new version of FileVault. I run it on all of my Macs, even the ones that sit on a desk like an iMac, because I can't tell any performance loss from using it. And I have now built in, without having to pay 150 bucks a year, a fully encrypted drive, which is, I think, really what we all want. Yeah. And we'll talk about FileVault in the current day, because there are some some things that are different in other parts of the system that affect it. But yeah, it's way better. The most important thing with FileVault, though, is to make sure that you know your your account password and your FileVault recovery key. When you set it up, you get this long key. Uh, that's definitely something that I recommend having a one password or printing and putting in the safety deposit box or the fireproof safe or whatever. Because if you lose those bits of information, your data is gone. Because it's encrypted and you can't unencrypt it. And I've seen, I've had people that I've tried to help in that situation, and it's really terrible to tell them, I'm sorry, but all of this stuff is gone. So you got to make sure you keep that information, you know what it is, and backups are definitely critical with File Vault. So if you do have a problem, at least you have your data somewhere else as where as well. So it's a little responsibility, but I agree with you, File Vault 2 is miles better than the original version. Okay, so for someone listening, what does it mean when you've got FileVault turned on? I mean, just realistically, uh, how does that make things better for them? We've talked about how it can make things worse if you lose the password. But <laughs> So as far as things that are better, again, that, that scenario where someone has physical access to your machine, they can't read the data on the disk without that encryption key. So that's why you got to keep your account password. You have to know that. If you lose your account password, you can use your recovery key. So you got to keep both of you got to keep that somewhere uh, safe and sound. It's not something you want to tape on the bottom of your MacBook Pro. <laughs> you know, you want that safe yeah. and sound somewhere. Uh, but it it encrypts things um, once it's up and running on the fly. So if you have new files you create, they're automatically encrypted. You don't have to log in and log out to make it work like the first file vault. It basically just works in the background, encrypting the entire disk. And it really, I agree with you, there's not really a performance hit anymore. These Macs are so fast. The SSDs are so fast. I don't think anyone could would notice, really, that, it, that it's running. And th- that upside is your data on that drive is secure even if the device isn't, right? It's like It's like if someone, I don't know, steals a car and like they they don't know how to drive it or something right it's it's really no good to them because that drive is encrypted they're not going to be able to do anything with it they're not going to be able to reinstall mac os on it they're not going to be able to erase it because that drive is fully encrypted it, it literally bricks the mac like if you go to like nuke and pave your mac you'll you'll note that it wants you to insert a password that is 
file vault, as I understand it, telling you that, no, we can't even let you format this yep. thing without yep. that password. Now, in the days before file vault two, there were ways to take somebody else's Mac and log in around their password. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do it for family members cause they'd lose their password and whatever. And, uh, that, to my knowledge, maybe there's somebody out there in the world that's figured it out. But to my knowledge, I mean, that that is impossible or significantly more difficult if you have FileVault yeah. turned on. Yes, yeah, so if you have FileVault turned on and say you use target disk mode, uh, it's going to it's going to require that password before it mounts the disk on the host computer or before if you don't have it running, you can put it in target disk mode and the drive just shows up like an external drive. So I uh, I definitely think it's something that people should look at and you don't have to worry about is this going to make my Mac slow on a modern Mac? It won't. So go to system and privacy settings in your system settings. Mm-hmm. And there's a tab there for file vault. Uh, you'll likely find it's already turned on because I think it defaults to be turned on now. Yeah. On new Macs, I think starting in Mojave or Catalina, it was on the checkbox was checked by default on a new installation. Yeah. Because like this Mac I'm recording on today, I've only had you know a month, and I don't recall if I turned it on or not, but it's on. So yeah, um, yeah, you can go in and turn it on, and go in there and and deal with your settings. If you don't know your password, um, you can unlock your Mac, turn file vault off, and then turn it back on and record all those passwords. So um, make sure you do that. Make sure you got yourself backed up, but turn it on. I mean, this is like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. A couple of other things that Apple has implemented over the years uh, concern the security of of individual applications, what they can see on your disk, how you can install them. A gatekeeper is a big part of this. Gatekeeper has settings. If you open, again, that security and privacy pane and system preferences, options to allow software just from the Mac App Store or the Mac App Store and identified developers. And so how this works when you launch a new application, it's checked that the the signature of the application matches what Apple knows it to be, um, that it hasn't been blacklisted because Apple does have a way to kill applications on Macs. So do you remember like um, uh, in 2019, I think Zoom had that issue where they were had like a web server running on your Mac all the time, yeah. just not good. Yeah, uh, Apple has a mechanism to silently push an update to all Macs and can disable certain applications. They use it exceedingly sparingly. That I feel like for them to to use that, there's a bunch of things that have to happen inside Apple for that button to get pushed. But they do have that button. I mean, it was I think it was a two years ago, and I forget the name. It was a reputable app, but some hacker had broken into their servers. It was, um, yeah. It was transmission, a BitTorrent client. And so yeah. when you downloaded it from their website, from them, it contained uh, malicious code that they didn't put there. It's not good. Apple shut that down to yep. using their, their in case of fire break glass button, you know. Um, so that's good, you know, that they've got the ability to do that. And the settings you were talking about is like, if you want to be ultra secure, like if you have a hypothetical mother-in-law, you throw the switch where they only can install apps from the app store, you know, mm-hmm. 
uh, for most of the listeners of this show, I think, you know, reliable third-party developers, a lot of us download apps from people that are in the app store. Some of the apps we run can't run through the app store. Right. Um, that's fine too, I think. Um, just, you know, um, those, I think Apple was smart to give us a little bit of a pressure relief valve there with that second option. Yeah. And it's and it's really safer than ever to install software from outside the Mac App Store. Starting in 2019, there was a new program called Notarization. And so it's an automated system. It's not like app review. You know, if you build an application, a human has to see it and approve it to go into the store. This is automated to make sure that an application doesn't contain anything that Apple knows to be malicious. And it is then attach the developer ID. So say something like that transmission story, an application written by a well-meaning developer. They have an issue between <laughs> building the application and you downloading it. A middleman got a hold of their server and did some bad things. Notarization would stop that because the version that the developer told Apple, this is the version that I want people to run, and the version that's running on hundreds of thousands of Macs don't match, then... Apple forbids it to launch. And uh, it's it's way more complicated than that in the way that it actually works, but it's an extension of Gatekeeper. So if you have software not from the Mac App Store and then you you right-click on it and find it, you tell it to open or you, you tell the finder, yes, I allow this application to run, there is still a layer of security there that at least Apple knows that it is not known to be malicious. It's not a perfect system. No system is. And there's definitely like some concerns on the part of some people that is Apple overreaching? Should Apple have their fingers in all software that runs on the Mac? But I think for users, I think it's the right call because it means that I can download something from the web and between all these different mechanisms, I can know that it's not doing anything that's known to be malicious. Yeah, I I was at WWDC when notarization was announced and there were some developers concerned. Like it's Mm -hmm. like, why do they need to do this? You know, why do we need to worry about them approving my app? I mean, it's an open platform, you know, in comparison to a lot of other platforms. And, and the question always in my mind was, well, how will Apple use that power? And they have not abused it. I mean, they're, they're truly, I think, trying to protect users. And just like we were talking about earlier, they don't break glass and smash the button very often. And when they do, it's entirely justified. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would say is that, um, all of this represents a massive effort behind the scenes and talking to people at Apple, um, you know, about security and the, and the chances I get, um, it's clear to me that um, maybe about seven, eight years ago, Apple said, look, we don't want to be hacked. You know, we don't want a big problem with our software and our users. And it seems to me like there has been a tremendous amount of effort going into this file vault two and this app security stuff. And this is not a trivial like side project at Apple. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I do like to think that it's actually glass and actually button. Like yeah. there's a big red <laughs> there button we go. in yeah. an empty room and Craig Frederick comes in with a hammer and smashes it. Yeah. And it's like thick glass. You got to really, you got to yeah. really whack it. Yeah. 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 Put that glass on our next iPhones, Craig. <laughs> This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Smile. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with the power of Text Expander. Head over to textexpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users to get 20% off. 
Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste, better than scripts and templates, Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Text Expander can be used on any platform, any app, anywhere you type. Take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners get 20% off their first year if you just go to textexpander.com slash podcasts to learn more. Now, I tell you, Text Expander, they're the very first sponsor of the Mac Power Users, and I'm so pleased to have them back as a sponsor in 2021 because it's an app I use every day. It gives you statistics, and every year, Text Expander literally saves me days of my life because I use it for so much text. You can too. If you want to automate, you can automate it with it. Um, you know, if you want to have it do the fillings, whatever you want to do with Text Expander, it can grow to uh, to meet whatever your needs are. So, gang, if you're not using it, go check it out at textexpander.com slash podcast. And we thank Text Expander and Smile Software for their support of the Mac Power users. So you mentioned something a second ago that not all applications can necessarily run through the Mac App Store. And uh, that's due to a, a really a system of policies called sandboxing. And what that means is that applications basically have limited access to data on the disk and limited access to uh, APIs on the system. You may have heard like, oh, they're using a a private API or something undocumented, sandbox apps need to uh, basically conform to all the rules that Apple has. And some applications just can't do that in the way that they work. It's not that they're doing something bad or the developers are lazy. It's that Apple's vision for this is relatively limited in scope compared to what a lot of applications need to perform their jobs. And so uh, sandboxing is something, it really was a big argument for years after it was introduced in 2011. That's more or less calmed down now. And I think people sort of understand that there are just types of applications that that aren't in the Mac App Store. But at the same time, Apple has worked to widen their net and allow more applications in the Mac App Store and even some back. So some, some things like BB Edit was out of the app store for a long time and now it now it's back and that is kind of what it is on the mac i don't think apple's going to back down but they're also not pushing and saying you know all applications need to conform to this just the ones in our store yeah i think the the thing that fueled the debate over sandboxing when it first showed up was a legitimate fear that apple was going to first say you have to sandbox and second say you can only get apps from the app store. You know, the third party distribution model is going to die. We're going to not let the Mac run anything you didn't download from the Mac app store. And um, it, Apple wasn't necessarily explicit at the beginning, you know, and the silence made us nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that kind of shook out. I mean, as we talked about earlier in this episode, you can install third party software. There's even a specific button for it in the operating system. And I don't think anyone's really legitimately fear of Apple suddenly just saying, you know, use the App Store or you don't get to distribute on Mac anymore. So that kind of, it seemed like everything calmed down a bit. And, and Apple did make adjustments to the sandbox. But yeah. you're right. 
not everything can run through it. And that that's the few areas where you have to look for reputable developers. I mean, an example was the sponsor I just read was text expander. And I mean, it really, it's an app that does text expansion throughout your Mac operating system. It really isn't consistent with a sandbox model, but it's from a developer that I trust and I've used forever, you know, and I don't have any problem with it. But the nice thing about all the sandboxing stuff is you don't have to make that decision very often. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Another big addition has been a system of app permissions. So what an, an individual program has access to in terms of your data. This started in, or really started picking up steam in Catalina. Some of the stuff had been around before, but Catalina was the big shift. And this is, again, in system preferences security and privacy, and then privacy. And what you get is a big list of the different types of requests that applications can make on the left and on the right, what applications have requested it and that you've granted that access to. So there's like two dozen of these. It's things like your location, access to personal information like contacts, calendars, reminders, and photos, access to input devices, so keyboard strokes, mouse movements, camera, microphone, speech recognition, things like that. And there's a group of them dedicated to what access it has within the the file system. So can it see everything on your disk? Can it just see your desktop but not see your downloads folder? Do you let it see network volumes or access information on removable volumes? And you'll see as you use a Mac and you install new software, you will get these as these applications uh, request them. As an application needs access to something, it will ask for it. And you can always monitor and review uh, what is in there in this uh, privacy system preference pane. Yeah, I think the most important part of this, and and, uh, there were legitimate complaints about this feature last year when it came out, because People felt like if you just stick up, you know, five dialogue boxes, people are just going to click them yes. and not really pay attention. And the thing I try to tell people, um, even, you know, hypothetical mother-in-laws is keep your brain turned on mm-hmm. when these dialogue boxes show up and just look for what they're asking for versus what they do. If you're installing an alternative contact manager and it asks for permission to see your contact data, that makes sense, right? Um, but if you're per- installing a, an alternative contact manager and it wants full disk read-write access, then you you got to scratch your head for a minute and say, well, why would a contact app need access to my entire drive? Mm-hmm. And I, I actually like this feature. I think it's good because it forces developers to be honest. And I think it does encourage developers to try and limit their access to just those things they absolutely need. Yeah. Um, where a contact app of 10 years ago would have had full access to my drive and a bad, you know, malicious contact app could have done all sorts of damage. That's really not an option anymore. Yeah. I I agree with you that on the whole, this is a good system. I do think it is messy in places in particular. If you, uh, I just ran across this. If you upgrade from something older than Catalina and like you move data over like through time machine or a migration, you just get, hit with a bunch of these all at once. I think there's room for Mac OS to organize this better that when you are upgrading to uh, an OS that has new app permissions or you install new software, 
can can all this be in a centralized place where you can read through them all and make decisions as opposed to being bombarded with a bunch of these at once and they're overlapping and they're fighting for front window control and that sort of thing. It can just be a little bit sloppy. And yeah. And uh and likewise some of these permission types require an admin password and others don't. And I'm not sure that the logic of what an admin is required for or not is completely consistent through them all. I think this has grown over time, uh, especially the last two years. And I think that it would be nice for Apple to just clean this up a little bit and make it easier to manage. Because when you look at it in system preferences, uh, it's a little overwhelming. And I think that they could just make it visually easier to parse and easier to understand. Yeah, and, and we covered this uh, when Catalina released, but I feel like the most harrowing moment for all of this is the first time you run Catalina because yeah. it just it is way too many boxes. And mm-hmm. it would be nice if there was a summary sheet or like you could say this app is uh, you know wants access to these items, yeah. and then there's a details button where you can go in and do something. But instead, it just gives you a separate box for each item that each app requests. And it is very tempting just to start clicking OK. But keep your brain turned on. Um, this is another argument to put non-power users on user accounts, honestly. Um, but are there any in here that you always check very carefully? Like for me, full disk access, anytime that one pops up, I really stop and think about it. Yeah, that's definitely the biggest red flag for me. I understand that if a, a text editor needs to save something to my documents folder, like, okay, <laughs> that, that's cool. But yeah, full disk access is definitely the big one and screen recording. Uh, and screen recording is one of those two yeah. that's not super well named because I mean, I, I'm pulling it up on, on my machine now and in my screen recording section, uh, if you will, things like better snap tool and, Streamlabs and Bartender and Zoom are there. Well, they're there because they need to be able to know what's happening on the screen and window placement, but it's not really screen recording, right? So I think that's an example of one I always look at, but I also wish Apple would make more clear what this actually meant. Yeah, agreed. Well, um, it is a security feature. I think overall, I'm glad it exists. Me too. But I'm with you. I think they could implement it better. Um, and, you know, just just don't mindlessly click those, gang. It's just you're asking for trouble. But, you know, mostly you download an app from the App Store or from a recognized developer. There's usually a pretty good reason those boxes are there. But but I have had apps that I've downloaded that seem like they're asking too much. And especially if they're like small utilities, I may just not install the app. Yeah, I think that's a good a good rule of thumb, just like go into it with your eyes open, thinking about what the app does and just use common sense. But Apple didn't stop there either. Uh, no, they, they did not. Uh, so I want to talk about Apple hardening the system. So making Mac OS itself more secure. So if you think about the old days, Mac OS 10, it's just a group of folders and files and you can just go in there and, if, if you're an admin, delete stuff and move things around and then your Mac wouldn't boot or you would have trouble. And uh, starting in El Capitan four, five, six years ago, the mountain ones, I can never remember the order that they were in. It's very difficult. Um, Apple introduced okay. system integrity protection. And so what this does is 
it makes sure that the the files that make up the Mac operating system, what you can do to them is limited. And what applications can do to them is limited. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the root user. So that's disabled by default. But root is sort of like a, a super administrator. It can do things that a regular administrator can't. No average user, even really power user, has any business using root 99.999% of the time. Even yeah. someone like me, when I had a career in supporting Macs, I would very rarely reach for that tool. But it's really, really rare that you need it. And one thing System Integrity Protection, or SIP, does is it even puts limits on what a root user can do. You can disable this, and sometimes you will come across software that says, hey, if you want to run me, you need to disable system integrity protection. And that is a giant red flag to me that that is not software that I need to run. Uh, I do not disable SIP on any of my hardware. I leave it on, and that is my strong recommendation. Even disabling it, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. Apple doesn't make it easy. But this is something that Apple turns on and people should leave on. Yeah, I again, I, I think just the rule should be don't ever turn off SIP. I mean, it just, I'm not aware of a good reason to do it. I, I'm sure I'm going to get emails from people. But um, the, we talked earlier about software integrity. You know, what SIP is protecting is system integrity, which is the underlying operating system. And it is crazy what in the old days we used to do to our Macs because we would go in and mm -hmm. start altering files because it was fun and we were kids and we didn't care. But those were computers that weren't connected to the internet, you know, and didn't have all our personal details on them already. Yeah. Um, I, I, I honestly, I mean, are you familiar with any good reason to turn it off? I mean, outside of being like a genius that needs to really pull something apart. Yeah. I was going to say that, or if you're, maybe if you're a specific type of software developer, but people like us, People like our like the listeners of Mac Power users have no business turning this off. Yeah, yeah. And Apple has even gone further than that. So starting in Catalina, this OS keeps coming up. Apple did a lot of security stuff in Catalina in uh, in 2019. Mac OS itself runs on a read only system volume, it's completely separate from the files on your Mac. Now. The Finder does some magic and makes it seem like, oh, Macintosh HD is just one volume. But really on Catalina and later, it's two. It's actually more than two, but two important ones. Macintosh HD, which is where macOS itself lives. And you can't write to that, that volume. So anything you need to do, you need to do in Macintosh HD-data. That's where... All the other stuff lives. And again, Finder makes them appear as one because Apple has, you know, APFS magic stuff and they can do weird things in the file system. But uh, this was a, a great move from, from a security standpoint because it means not only that I as a user could accidentally put something in my macOS system folder and break it, it also means that applications I install can't write to macOS itself and all the files and folders that make up the operating system, they are quite literally partitioned off from access to anything on the system. And uh, you may have noticed after installing Catalina or a software update, 
you may get a folder on your desktop called relocated items. And what those are, are files that macOS says, you're not part of me, you don't belong on this volume, I'm going to dump them on the user's desktop. And it may be files or folders that you put in slash system at some point in the past and don't belong there anymore. So if you've seen that, most people have, that's what that is. Again, something that's not really explained. It's kind of shows up on your desktop sometimes. But uh, this was a, a big move in Catalina. It caused some issues with some software, especially things like backup utilities. But they're all working around it now. And again, another a very strong move on Apple's part to make sure that macOS itself isn't being taken advantage of. Now, where this gets users in trouble is if you are recycling or selling or whatever, getting rid of a Mac and you want to nuke and pave, Historically, you'd go in disk utility and you'd erase Macintosh HD. Um, if you go in disk utility now, you'll see both Macintosh HD and Macintosh HD data. And if you don't realize it, your data is on the one marked data. So erasing Macintosh HD without erasing Macintosh HD data actually doesn't erase your data. So uh, you need to you need to erase. If you're going to do a nuke and pave, the way I do is I erase both of them. Now, Macintosh HD and Macintosh HD data, and then I run a reinstall. But do not forget to erase that second partition. Yeah, there's even, I know it's in Big Sur. I think it's in Catalina too. There's actually a command in that recovery mode that says erase Mac. And so you don't even have to deal with like disk utility stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, if you've come across that or you've seen that, like if you use Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper or something, it, it may give you a warning about this. Uh, that's what's going on. So macOS is kind of on its own island, and all of your data is on a separate volume. Another change that I am super pleased with. I mean, I think that as a user, I do not want anybody or any app to have the ability to change my operating system. It's such a fundamental security thing. You wonder why it took so long. Yeah. I, I yeah, I do wonder why it took so long. I think part of it was they needed some of the stuff in the file system to be mature enough to like yeah. hide the fact that it's actually two um two different volumes. Like, oh it's just yeah. it's just one. Because I mean if you if you booted your Mac up and it said Macintosh HD and Macintosh HD slash dash data, you'd be like, what is happening? And so they wanted yeah. to hide that complexity. Yeah. And and I am sure APFS has something to do with it. You know? Oh, I'm sure. One uh, fi- more step they've done with this in Big Sur is that they've taken this read-only volume and they've signed it so Apple can really ensure that nothing's been tampered with, that even though the fact that it's read-only uh, going a step further. And so uh, as we get into some of the hardware security stuff in a second, it means that Apple can look at a at a cryptographic signature and know that that version of macOS is exactly as Apple intends. Um, I'll put a really in-depth article at the Electric Light Company in the show notes. It may melt your brain. It melted mine trying to read about some of this stuff, but it re- I, I include it because it really shows how deep Apple is willing to go into how the Mac works to make it more secure. And a lot of this stuff, honestly, has been inherited from how iOS devices work. And that's not yeah. a bad thing because iOS devices are really secure. So Apple continues to move the ball forward on a system that, I mean, Mac OS X, gang, like it turns 20 years old this year in March. 
and Apple's not willing to let it just sit and and let these new practices go by. Yeah. So if someone were able to figure out a way to replace the read-only files of your operating system, because now it's a signed file, that would immediately trigger um, with this new feature. And the Mac would say, hey, wait a second. This isn't what we, we put on here. Yep. Nice. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash MPU and use the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. It's the beginning of the year. A lot of people, including myself, are starting new projects. Maybe it's a portfolio or a blog or an online store, whatever it is. Squarespace is the place to host it. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea. You can use a unique domain name, tap into their award-winning templates, and much more. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform. It means all that stuff I listed, stores, portfolios, blogs, hosting a podcast, just having a, a sort of standard business website, all of that stuff is under one roof with Squarespace. And there's nothing to install. There are no patches to worry about. You don't have to upgrade stuff in the middle of the night because Squarespace has all of that covered for you. If you have any questions, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support lets you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I've set up Squarespace sites for a lot of people over the years, and my favorite thing is when someone can log into it and update their content on their own and not be afraid that they're going to break the website. They can just drag pictures in off their desktop. They can copy text in. They can embed a video and they don't have to worry about, oh, is it too wide? Is it going to break the page on when someone looks at it on an iPhone, et cetera, et cetera. Squarespace just handles all of that stuff so people can focus on what matters most. Their plans start just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show you support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for the support of the show and Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, Stephen, I'm pretty sure if you went back into the archives of the Mac Power users, at some point you'd hear me saying something to the effect that if someone got physical possession of your Mac, it's game over, you know? Mm-hmm. And um and I do think that was absolutely true when we first started making the show with target disc mode. And there were just a lot of ways for someone to punch through and get your data if they had your Mac. Yeah. But Apple has been taking steps on that. Um, And I thought that we should probably next talk about hardware. Yeah, because Apple has done a lot in their hardware to make these things more secure. So it's kind of a two angled approach, both software and hardware. Starting in 2016 with those MacBook Pros, you know, with the cruddy keyboards, uh, those came with the T1 chip and it had a secure enclave for the Touch ID sensor so you could log in with your fingerprint and use Apple Pay. It ran the touch bar. It acted as a physical gatekeeper for the microphone and the camera. Um, And the T1 and its younger and much more powerful sibling, the T2 chip, they run a system called Bridge OS. So you're going to hear us refer to that a little bit. Bridge OS is 
a variant of iOS that runs on these really Apple Silicon chips inside of Intel Macs, taking care of the security stuff, which is just a wild proposition that you have like a tiny ARM computer in your Intel computer, making the Intel computer safer. Like I just, (laughs) it's just so funny to me that that was the solution, but it was the solution because Apple could do their own thing. And of course we're seeing that pay dividends now with uh, the Apple Silicon Macs that have rolled out so far. Yeah, and they understood ARM. They were already making ARM chips for their phones and everything else. So it kind of makes sense the way they did it. Yeah. Um, and that that Bridge OS is, well, just kind of explain what it is a bit further because it's it's, it's fascinating to me. It's, it's a mere existence, really. I agree with you. It's like the machine inside the machine. So Bridge OS has, um, it's got, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's closer to firmware than actual software, which is code that runs on hardware and controls hardware. It does a bunch of stuff. So it verifies that the Mac OS installation is good to install. So the stuff we spoke about before the break about Big Sur being signed by Apple and things like, uh, oh, is this a read-only volume? Has it been tampered with? This, the boot-up security settings, which we're going to talk about in a second, Bridge OS handles all of that stuff. And it also is the the middleman between Touch ID and the Touch Bar on machines that have that, as well as the microphones and the cameras from Mac OS. So Mac OS has to ask the T1 or the T2, hey, I'd like to use the camera. And then Bridge OS says yes or no, uh, depending on the security settings that have been set. So it it is handling a lot of the stuff around the edges Again, on Intel Macs. With Apple Silicon Macs, this is all just baked in. Nice. And and so um, they had the T1 and then the T2. Mm-hmm. Where Does that also deal with FileWall? Uh, it, it does. So on the, the T2 Macs, which are basically 2018 and higher, there's a list in the show notes. T2 Macs, the T2 also handles hardware encryption on the SSDs. And so um, say for instance, your iMac pro say that someone, you know, got a hold of it and took the glass of it off and ripped out the SSDs. They actually can't get the data off of them because they are through encryption tied to the T2 chip on the logic board. And so the SSDs don't work outside of the computer. It means that when you upgrade the SSD in a Mac Pro, as I have done, you have to go through a very complicated process to tell the T2, these are your new SSDs, and get them yeah. to shake hands. It's it's a little wild. It's a, a very unusual compared to how we think about storage on Intel Macs before this point. Sure, I remember the days where I used to take, you know, a, a, a MacBook and just take the panel off the bottom and yeah. stick a new drive in it and off to the races. Yep. Not not anymore. Not anymore. And it is you would look at this and say, well, this this kind of conflicts with File Vault, right? So if File Vault's going to encrypt my drive, well, I already have the SSDs fingerprinted to the machine. Do I need File Vault? And I didn't know the answer to this. Uh, so I looked it up. And what Apple says is Apple has this, this document um, that talks about encrypted storage on your Mac. And they say, though the SSD and the computers that have the T2 chip are encrypted, you should turn on FileVault so that your Mac requires a password 
to decrypt your data. So they recommend, even on a T2 Mac, to run File Vault. Yeah, because those are really two separate problems. You know, there's the tear the drive out of the machine problem, and there's the boot up and try and read data problem. Right. And so this, they work hand in hand. It's like another layer of security. Another cool thing that the T2 Macs do is if you have a notebook, there's a physical disconnect between the microphones and the Mac when the lid is closed. So if you close your MacBook Air with a T2 chip in it, you're not going to uh, have to worry about the microphones being turned on, you know, against your knowledge when the machine is asleep because they're physically disconnected. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, people forget about that. I mean, we talk about the video cameras. I think the microphones probably are more dangerous yeah. in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because uh, those could be hot anytime, even when the lid is closed. Um, now, they've also got the startup security utility. Um, um, and this is something where I am completely lost. I just need you to explain to me what it is because I, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand this. Sure. So if you have, again, a T2 Mac, so roughly 2018 or later, you know, look at the list. This startup security utility offers protection for the Mac in the boot process. So when you hit the power button, a bunch of things could happen and startup security utility can limit what what is allowed to happen. So this is found in the macOS recovery partition. So if you boot up with command R held down, you can get to this. And you have uh, several settings. You can turn a a firmware password on or off. Firmware passwords have been on the Mac forever. I mean, ages. And if you have a firmware password, it is required before you start up from an external drive, like a CD or a DVD or like a USB key. You know, if you need to reinstall macOS from USB, you have to enter the firmware password first so that that's been around for a long time it got incorporated into the new startup security utility do you ever use a firmware password i do on my notebook because i used to travel with it okay on my mac pro i don't uh, but on my notebook i do um then you have a couple of other options you have secure boot and what this set of preferences tells the mac what os are you allowed to boot from so there's a, a a no security option. Just boot from any OS that you know about. So if your machine came with High Sierra, yeah, you can boot High Sierra, Mojave, Catalina, or Big Sur. You know, any OS that can run on this Mac, you can boot from it. No problem. Which causes security issues, probably, because a lot of those older um, operating right. systems weren't as secure. Yeah. Right. And then there's medium security. So any version of a signed operating system ever trusted by Apple to run. So there's old Mac OS versions, versions of Windows. But, you know, if you've got something real janky looking, like you've you know got some weird Linux version Apple doesn't know about it, eh, we're not going to let that boot. We, we got to know what it is. Most, the, almost all Mac users running on medium security could boot from anything they could get their hands on. And then there's full security. And this means that only the current OS or assigned operating system currently trusted by Apple can run. And it requires a network connection when you install that software. So some people run into issues with this. Maybe there, I had issues actually in the Big Sur beta with this on my laptop. I had to turn it down to medium security. 
But yeah. uh, in general, and I think it's the default, most people don't have a problem with this, is, hey, I'm running Big Sur. Apple knows about Big Sur. They trust Big Sur. Let me boot from it. Yeah. It would protect against, hey, I downloaded Mojave from the internet, and maybe the copy I got or the copy I got from my friend is been tinkered with somehow or I'm installing an older version of Windows than Apple trusts on this hardware, that sort of thing. And, and to get to the startup security utility, you need to go to the recovery partition on your Mac. So if you are on an Intel Mac, hold down Command-R and just hold it for a while with the power button after you turn it on and you'll get there and that's one of the options. And to get to it on an Intel Mac, I'm sorry, on an Apple Silicon Mac, you just hold the power button down for an extended period of time. You don't have to hit any magic key combination. Yeah, which I think is way more elegant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So what what are your recommendations on these settings? So it sounds to me like you're saying generally try and keep it on full security. Yeah. And if you've got a, a laptop that's going to leave the house, maybe turn on a firmware password as well. Yeah. I have not done that. See, now I, that's something I need to change. I've never had a firmware password on my laptop, yeah. so I'm going to do that today. Well, there is a sort of an overlapping setting in here uh, called external boot settings, and it allows the Mac or disallows the Mac to be booted from an external source. Yeah. Uh, that overlaps with the firmware password quite a bit. And uh, the the difference is, if you set a firmware password and I happen to know it, I can just log. It, I can just type it in, and then I'm off to the races to boot for my sketchy, you know, pirated Mac OS drive. Yeah. But if you have external boot disallowed and a firmware password, and I know your firmware password, I still can't get in because I would need your administrator password to change the external boot setting. So it's a superset of the firmware password. Okay. A little confusing, but it makes sense once you kind of read the fine print on Apple's support page. So if you've got a notebook in particular, I would definitely recommend external boot, you know, disallowing external media. And I think I'm all, I'm positive full security is the default. And, oh, it is the default setting. It says it right here on this page. I think you leave full security on unless you're in a very specific situation where it runs, you run into a problem with it where you're trying to do something that it disallows. But these are good settings because they are making sure that the Mac knows what it's booting from. And again, on the Intel Macs, is only on the T2. It's being validated by an independent system. It's a T2 chip with Bridge OS looking at the Mac, looking at Mac OS saying, hey, this version of Mac OS is blessed. You can continue booting through me and get to your Mac. So it is... A little hard to explain, but once you get your head around it, it makes a lot of sense the way Apple has sort of divided up these different security settings across these independent parts of the system. Yeah, so so when I said years ago that it's game over if someone gets possession of your hardware, that's really not true anymore. I mean, I'm sure there are people or with enough resources that could probably brute force their way in, but mm -hmm. I mean... For the typical crook, they're not going to get to your data if you right. take these steps. Right. Um, yeah. If, maybe if like the NSA gets a hold of your laptop, but I feel like if they have your laptop, you have other issues in your life. Yeah, so. exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, your your car getting broken into, getting, you know, swiped off the Starbucks table, that sort of thing. 
the average person who's going to do that is not going to be able to get your data. All right. So where is this new security going to cause me headaches in my life? Really, the I think the the big thing is if something goes wrong with the T2 or Bridge OS, which can happen because Bridge OS itself gets updated all the time with regular Mac OS updates. And on occasion, those things can go wrong. And uh, Apple then basically lets you either revive or restore your Mac. You need another Mac. You need a USB-C cable. You need Apple configurator running on another Mac. And uh, there's some documents that walk you through how to do this. I've had to do it only once and it was probably my fault. I was like goofing around with like a early version of the big Sur beta and I tried to go back and like it, it all went sideways on me. Yeah. Most people in everyday life are not going to run into this, but it's good to know that if you have issues where a Mac's not going to boot and you can't get into recovery mode and clearly something is just really messed up, this is available to you or to your service agent, you know, if you go to the Genius Bar or an independent shop. So, but really, I think for the vast majority of users, the vast majority of the time, this stuff doesn't get in the way. It makes your Mac more secure in a way that you don't really notice. Now, we're going to talk in a little while about how some people in the enterprise feel about this or who maybe need to run a bunch of Macs. Maybe some of this stuff is a headache. But for the individual user or the small business, None of this stuff's really going to get in your way. Yeah. Does this, I know like, for instance, there are some articles I've been reading about Apple Silicon and like the nuke and pave process has changed because of all this stuff. Is that, is that minor? Is that correct? Yeah, it's a little bit different. And at least at the time we were recording this in early January, 2021, some of it's actually a little bit broken on Apple's side, but it is basically more or less the same because you still have recovery mode, you get into a different way. But once you're in recovery mode, you have the same sorts of tools available to you. The big difference is that this is not a separate T2 chip. It's built into the Apple Silicon chip. Again, again, vast majority of people, vast majority of the time don't need to know that, but I think it's super interesting. They just built it in. Yeah. And one thing they've added to all of this is that system integrity protection is running all the time. It's running continuously. Even though the system is on a read-only volume, even though that system is cryptographically signed and checked by Apple, it is now checked continuously. It's not just during startup. So if you install an application or you try to do something somehow and you run afoul of these rules, then the Mac knows about it immediately and can, and will prompt you to address it. And so... It's always got your back instead of just at startup. Yeah, just say to be clear on Intel, it wouldn't find the problem until the next time you turned your computer on. Which, like, how often do you reboot your computer? I mean, yeah. seriously, like, I very rarely reboot my machines. I think most people don't very often. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com/mpu and get a free seventy-five dollar credit to upgrade your next job post. Hiring is one of those things that you do not want to mess up. You need to hire great people if you want to take your entire business to the next level. And with the stakes this high, there is only one choice, Indeed. Indeed Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates instantly with Indeed Instant Match. So you can do the part you really need faster. 
That's meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control with payment flexibility, helping to deliver a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, you can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to show you great candidates instantly. With Instant Match, you see a list of the great candidates right away. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, listeners of this show get a free $75 credit to upgrade their job post at Indeed.com slash MPU. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. So get your free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash MPU. One last time, that's Indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is valid through March 31 and terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power users and all of FM. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, best practices. But before I get there, I want to say a couple of things. One, these systems basically all work together. And the more that you u- utilize them, the more secure your Mac itself is. What we haven't really talked about is security beyond the Mac. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. You know, we're, we haven't really addressed things like account passwords for websites and that sort of thing. This has really been about your Mac as an entity unto itself, the data that's on it, how secure that is from both software and a hardware perspective. But that said, I think you and I both definitely have some recommendations on how to have Mac OS set up. Yeah. Um, Let's start with the obvious, the login password. Have you ever seen someone in the last year or two that has a Mac that they turn on and there's no login password required? Uh, I have, and I always tell them, well, we're going to change this so you have to log in. Uh, <laughs> you I, need, I, you, need, you want to turn off that auto login feature. The, the, the reason I ask is because just over the holidays, a family member, you know, as, as you do, you do Mac repair whenever you see somebody, um, and they didn't have a password. I honestly didn't know that was even possible. I thought at this point, Apple had made it impossible to make a Mac without a startup password, but they're out there. Um, I suspect there are very few Mac power users, listeners that don't have a startup password, but I suspect there's also a lot of friends of Mac power users, listeners that do not have a password. So um, if you're out there, gang, keep an eye out for this because absolutely turn on a login password. I can't imagine that anybody in 2021 needs to be told that, but please do. Yeah. One big setting I'm a fan of is requiring a password to wake from screensaver. This is in the security preference pane. Yeah. Uh, And you can set, you know, one minute, five minute, and an hour, whatever. Uh, The reason I like this is that combined with a hot corner to turn my screensaver on, I know that basically... Instantly, someone's going to need my administrator password to get back into my computer. Now, this is definitely critical if you work around other people. Like my previous job before Relay, I was in an open office. And that meant that anybody could just walk up to my Mac and just move the mouse and they could have access to what's on my Mac. And so I started using this feature then and I continue to use it now where if it is in screensaver mode or it's asleep, they're going to be 
shown a password prompt before they're allowed in. And that is not a big deal for me to type that password in or to use touch ID if that's available, but it can go a long way from sort of accidental security lapses where you walk away from your machine and just like Microsoft Word is open on it and someone else walks by or sits down at it. Well, they're just at your computer at that point. Something we haven't mentioned kind of related to this is Apple Watch Unlock. If you have an Apple Watch, you can have it unlock your Mac for you. I actually keep this turned on and I find it super convenient that when I sit down, I've got a secure Mac, but I also have the ability to unlock it just by being present. Yeah. Um, the uh, But I know also some people are not fans of that because they feel like if you're in the vicinity of your Mac, someone could get get into it at the same time. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I do. Actually, this happened to me just the other night. I hadn't thought about it till you said that. I was going to do something on my wife's MacBook Air, and she has it set up with Apple Watch Unlock. And so I was at the table sitting at the MacBook Air, and she was in the kitchen. So she was in the same physical space, but the Mac would not unlock with the watch because it wasn't close enough. So yeah, if, if I like was a bad guy and like dragged her over to her laptop and stuck her wrist next to it, sure, I could get yeah. in. But it is really good about, and Apple talked about this when they announced this feature, about figuring out distance. And you really need to be at the computer. Not to say that's completely bulletproof, but I think it's not as big of a concern as it may seem. And on a machine without Touch ID, like every Mac desktop, it really brings some of that magic that we can just like double tap on the side of your watch to use Apple Pay or to unlock one password or to log in to your user account. It's really great and seamless, but you know, it does there's a little bit of gray at the at the edges of that, I think. No, exactly. And and I I hear from listeners who say, no, I refuse to do that because I just don't want that. And and I'll, my response is, that is your prerogative, and I think that's fine. You're more secure than I am because I'm choosing convenience over security in this yeah. case. But I'm in a situation where it's just basically me and my family around my work computer. Sure. And they don't care, and I uh, I want to be able to get into things faster. So I use it all the time. And um and the thing I like about it is it does kind of allow you to have your cake and eat it too, because you still have a very secure password locking your computer. You just don't have to deal with it. I have uh, not been wearing my Apple Watch very much as I've recovered from this surgery on my foot. Uh, I've been really pretty bummed out that it is like, uh, you know, my fitness rings are in real poor shape. So I've been wearing another watch and I've missed it at my Mac at work. It's like I sit down and like hit the space bar. I'm like, let me in. Like, oh, right. I'm not wearing the Apple Watch. I can't. I, I, I honestly don't understand you guys and your fancy watches when you have the Apple ecosystem because, like, the watch brings so much to the table. This is just one more feature. It's like five years ago, someone said, if you just put this thing on your wrist, you can have a secure Mac that will unlock every time you, you step next to it. I think I might have just wore it just for that. You know, it's yeah. crazy. But, you know, I'm a nerd. So we talked about the the login password. Uh, some more best practices are, you know, what are you going to do with Gatekeeper in terms of app access? And, and when do you allow Gatekeeper to step aside and allow the running of third-party apps? Yeah, I think what you said earlier holds true to this whole episode is use your brain. You know, if you download an application and it's from a trusted developer, 
and it's not in the app store and it, you know, you got to bypass gatekeeper. Think about it, but you need to like know where the app came from and what its purpose is. I don't, I don't really don't think many people can get by with just allowing Mac store app software only, but I think almost everyone can get by with that plus signed applications, bypassing gatekeeper by right clicking on an application and saying open anyways. That is something that if I ever do that, I'm really clear with myself that I understand what this application is and where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep your brain turned on. Right. We haven't really talked much about kind of the internet, um, all the crooks on the internet trying to punch into your, your network and firewalls. Um, yeah. How are you handling that? I, I don't run uh, the Mac OS firewall, but I have, I have a firewall set up on my network, you know, between me and the internet. So yeah, that is handling it, handling it. Um, now if I were on a big like university network with thousands of other users, maybe I'd consider this. I didn't really know where to put this in the outline. So I have it here. You can go read about it. It's very comprehensive, including a stealth mode where, uh, your Mac doesn't even respond to requests that could reveal its existence. It's like a spy mode. It's like it. Look, anything that's called stealth mode is pretty cool. Can we, can we agree yeah. on that? Like, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's pretty sweet. Um, I think most people, if you have, you know, good network equipment at home or small business, you probably don't have to worry about this. But if your Mac is directly available to the Internet, so say you have uh, a Mac running as a server and it's accessible to the Internet, this is probably something you ought to look at and and read up on it and decide what you need to to do about it. But I think most of the time is not that big of a of a concern. Um, at least the way that I see it. So I have the Eero system and I actually pay them, uh, to monitor my DNS incoming stuff. And, um, and they give some me a report about what's coming in and going out and, yeah. and you can dial that down as much as you want with their, you know, add on services. So many of these companies do, Yeah. but, um, you, there, there's a lot of ways to, to scratch that itch that are outside of your Mac. Mm-hmm. And you can use something like a uh, little snitch, which is a, a third-party Mac application that's pretty popular that also operates in this realm. A uh, little snitch uh, basically just monitors and lets you know what applications are trying to connect to what out on the internet. So it's it can be another piece to this puzzle. All right, and we've already talked about File Vault. I believe we both are in agreement. You should turn it on. Yes, um, I have it on uh, on my notebook, not on my Mac Pro, but that's mostly because I just haven't done it. Uh, a bigger question is, um, do you turn File Vault on on your backups? Right, so you can, when you're on Time Machine, Time Machine asks, hey, do you, do you want to secure this drive? It may even say, you're backing up secure data to an unsecured drive. I think if you're at home, maybe you don't have to. But in my experience, it doesn't really slow down the backups and it prohibits somebody from walking in and taking your time machine drive and then having your data that's on your time machine drive. So that you run File Vault and startup secure utility and all this stuff on your Mac. But your Western Digital Drive sitting right there has all your data on it, unencrypted, just sitting there. It doesn't matter yeah. what you did on your Mac because if someone has that drive, they have all your stuff. And so if this, if a time machine drive is where other people are, where it could be taken, 
you should turn this on. And again, it doesn't really have a performance that I've noticed. And it is a password you need to keep up with. So stick it in a password manager somewhere. And I'd say, um, I'd say let it rip. I use a encrypted time machine backup again on the drive for my laptop because if I'm gone for two weeks for work, I take it with me. The time machine drive for my Mac Pro is inside my Mac Pro and I don't have it turned on on that one because it's inside the computer. And if someone's already inside my computer, again, I've got <laughs> I've got problems. So I'd say for most people, turn it on. Yeah, and I'll just take it a step further. I also, in addition to time machine backups, I do backups of data, just raw backups. Like mm-hmm. I have drives, what I'll put, you know, external copies of data on it. And the way I handle that for security is uh, some of it I don't secure. Like my photos library, I just copy it on. I mean, if someone steals that drive, they're going to get pictures of me at Disneyland. So many pictures of me at Disneyland, you know, and my dog. Um, so I don't really care. Uh, but the like the data that's important, um, I create what they call sparse disk images, which has been a feature available on the Mac forever, where you can create a separately password encrypted image on a drive and then i put all that stuff in there so i've got a separate set of passwords on those um how do you do do you do that and if so how do you handle that problem uh i don't so my offsite backups are just straight clones but they're secured in a secure location inside a safe yeah okay i mean i didn't care it physically uh but that's a great way to do it or if you have another good use for this software or you know this feature is if you have an external drive and you have sensitive data on it that's not a backup but say you're traveling with records that if they were taken at the airport you'd have a problem you know in your professional life yeah. or something it's another yeah. great way to make sure that stuff is safe and sound yeah i just it feels comfortable to me just adding a little bit of extra yeah i haven't looked into the question but i believe i could also encrypt the drive using the built-in file vault to an external drive even if it's not a time machine drive but to be honest i don't know the answer to that question i believe you can at least through the command line yeah um i should look into that that'd be that'd be nice too but i've been doing the sparse images forever yeah that's been around since the dawn of time i think yeah um okay so you've got your backups or at least the necessary parts of your backups encrypted you've got your machine encrypted i think you're pretty good on your security there, but something we haven't mentioned at all through the episode is password security. Yeah. And this could be a much bigger conversation. I think it will be at some point on a future episode, but uh, some of the simple, simple things that a lot of people know is using different, unique, strong passwords for all of your different accounts. Now that's impossible without a password manager. We both like one password. They are a sponsor of the show, but I've used them. You've used them well, you know, beyond their scope of an advertiser. Yeah. And, and long before they were an advertiser. Long before. I've, I mean, like, I've got yeah. 700 things in my one password library, and they're all unique yeah. and strong, and I can replace a single password at a time. Using a password manager for that sort of stuff is really critical this day and age, just because we have so many online accounts. And yeah. you don't necessarily have to worry about someone knowing your one password and, like, your single password, I should say, <laughs> and going around and trying a bunch of things. It's big data breaches that your email and password combination may be leaked. And that's way easier to try on a bunch of different websites. And so 
uh, this it takes some time to onboard onto a system like this. I would say the new year is a great time to be starting this process and and getting all of your stuff different and strong and safe. Yeah, and and really, you know, having a separate password for every login is the only way to protect yourself. The crooks, if they do get your password and your login from xyz.com or whatever website you're on, they are going to try. I mean, some crooks, they're going to publish it and then somebody's going to try it at other places too. And once they get into your bank or your iTunes or whatever, anything that involves money, then you really got a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and we talk about one password, but you know, whatever, you don't have to write me. If you've got a different password app, you like, that's fine. I don't care. Just, just use one. Apple has, has a, a basic one built in now. That's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one tangent to that conversation is two-factor authentication. The idea is to log into your bank. For instance, you need something you know and something you have. So I know my password and I have my phone. And my phone can generate either receive an SMS message with a, a, a code, like a six-digit code I need to plug in, or a one-time password, which is more secure SMS messages are basically out in the open. And if someone has your phone or your SIM card or something, it's pretty easy to, to get a hold of those. But a one-time password is generated based on the, the time. And so you enter them into something like one password and it says, here's your password and here's your one-time code automatically. You don't have to wait for a, an SMS. Yeah. Use them. And, you know, this whole thing about SMS versus one-time passwords for uh, two-factor authentication, the only thing I would say is one-time passwords are better and use them if you can, but don't use nothing because you're afraid of SMS. Does that make sense? If SMS is all you have available to you, use SMS. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) You know? Um, but, but the one-time password stuff is better. And I, I've moved almost everything over to that where I can, but uh, there's a couple services I use that don't seem to support it. Same. So I've got to use SMS and, and I'm not going to lose sleep over that. Yeah. I mean, someone could spoof my SMS card and stuff, but once again, I am not interesting enough for someone to do that. Yeah. Um, but, and when those services make it available, the one-time password, I will, but, but I am not going to say, well, SMS is dangerous. Therefore I'm not going to use it at all. Um, that is much worse. Yeah. Something else we haven't talked about at all on today's episode is virus software. And, you know, people coming from Windows always write me. You know, they find the Mac power users, they're transferring from Windows, they're like, what's the virus software I need for my Mac? And for many years now, I keep writing back telling them that I don't run virus software. <laughs> is that a mistake, Stephen? I don't think it is unless you're in some sort of big corporation and you're moving a lot of files back and forth with PC users, and then you could be a, a method of transit. But the Mac itself has very little active malware. Most of what you see on the Mac is called Adaware. And so you may have seen this where if you open Chrome or Firefox, like it doesn't go to the home page, it goes to some weird other page and you get a lot of new tabs with ads in them, that sort of thing. And even that's calm down over the last couple of years. But yeah, I don't run virus software. And I think for the vast majority of Mac users, it's not necessary because viruses, for the most part, are rogue applications written to attack a Windows computer and you're not running yeah. Windows. But you do see it a lot in the enterprise in businesses where you have both 
Mac and PC and you need to make sure that files are as safe as possible. So I, I understand why people need to run it, but I don't personally don't feel like I have that need. Yeah. And I, once again, I'm not telling you not to run it. I'm just telling you, I don't run it. Um, and one of the things I have against it is it feels like installing a virus on my machine, putting ad software or antivirus software on because it's so hard to like, once it's on there, it's like, it's, it's, it stays on there. Yeah. The AdAware stuff, there are apps out there that can help you diagnose if those things exist on your Mac. Um, one of the nice updates to um, clean my Mac is they've added the ability to look for that stuff. And there's also other third-party apps out there that you can use to look look for that stuff. But that's not antivirus software. That's just diagnosing if something exists on your drive or not. Yeah. The the thing underlying this whole conversation of security really is the idea or the concept of security versus usability because we want to use our Macs. I mean, the reason we own them is to get work done on them. And like, sure, you know, the ultimate security would make it so nobody could open the Mac, but you actually need to open the Mac to do your work. And there's always this interesting balance between security and usability. Um, how do you see that playing out now in this new era where Apple has taken a lot of steps to lock the Mac down. I think we mentioned the most problematic example, which is the app permissions model in Catalina and Big Sur, especially after an install moving to one of those OSs where you're just bombarded with 30 apps need 30 different sets of permissions and you just have to sit there and weed your way through them. I really hope Apple makes that onboarding nicer. I mean, think about like, you know, you bought a new Mac for the first time in six years and you're moving to one of these OSs and that's the first run experience. It's not great. Um, and I think that Apple could work on uh, sort of the the blind acceptance where, okay, I just have seen a bunch of these, just accept, accept, accept. Because if there's one bad one in there, you've, you know, you've let it in because you didn't read the fine print. So that's that's really the one I think for most users that's the most problematic. Um, You know, there's some stuff in here we can talk about, about large scale use, but I think for individuals, small businesses, homes, that sort of thing, I think the app permissions is probably the stickiest point. And my advice to users would be just hang in there. It gets better. I mean, when you first install Catalina, it feels like they're a never ending list of these boxes, but now it's pretty rare that I see them. And when I do, I can really pay attention to them, but, but, you know, just keep your head screwed on when you're seeing those approval boxes. I agree. Um, what you mentioned earlier, kind of like, you know, corporate installations, multiple Macs, and this security being a headache for those folks. Um, yeah. Uh, and I just wanted to mention it cause I know we have some of those admin users in our audience and there are people who listen to the show who maybe are under the authority of a Mac admin like this. And yeah. so in, in preparation for this, I spoke to a couple of different people who oversee large Mac deployments in the enterprise and business. And especially like the T2 chip and that secure boot stuff uh, has made some of this uh, more difficult. So in the past, you could say you could image which just means like bulk install software on a Mac 20 at a time. I did a lot of this, you know, 2008, 9, 10 of I've got 200 iMacs. They only have the same software on them. You could do them in bulk. That's more or less dead now uh, next to the T2 security stuff. 
Um, One thing that definitely gets people, both individual users and the enterprise, is activation lock. So when you sign into your Mac with an Apple ID, you know, sign in for iCloud or something, it will lock that Mac to that ID. And unless you deactivate it, so say you don't deactivate it and you sell it to somebody or you need to give it to a new user, there's no way to deactivate it without the initial password. So if John has a Mac and John leaves the company and now it's Jill's and you don't know John's personal Apple ID that he signed in with, it's activate. It's it's locked. Activation lock is is going to prevent you from erasing it, installing new Mac OS or anything. Now, there is a loophole. That loophole is to contact Apple with proof, the original proof of purchase for the Mac. And you can see where that could be problematic, especially if you buy a secondhand machine on some place like eBay or some sort of, you know, reseller that yeah. it wasn't properly unlocked. And then and then what do you do? Because you need the original proof of purchase, not yours that you bought it from eBay, but like where it got bought from Apple two years ago by somebody else in some other state. So it's really important that when you sell a machine or it's going to go to somebody else that you take the step to deactivate it. And the people that I spoke to who deal with this on a larger scale, they spend a lot of time trying to undo this and, and going through that process, which takes up like it's like a week long process. Cause you have to send it all to Apple. They review it and then they remotely deactivate your machine. And until then you're just stuck. And so that can be uh that can really slow things down in the business. Also, I uh, can't someone deactivate a machine remotely at Apple ID.apple.com. I, I think if you have a machine associated with your account, you can remove it there as well. You can. Um, so in that case where John left the company, you could call John and be like, Hey buddy, I know we fired you, but could you please log in and, and disable this? Yeah. Uh, so, so really you just fall into this where that person's no longer accessible to you or yeah. you bought it secondhand and the seller is not helpful. I mean, um, but that's how you, that's, it is how you deactivate it. Uh, you do it online and there's, there'll be a document in the show notes that explains it. So if you're selling a Mac or even giving a Mac to a family member, deactivate it first, turn off that lock because it's going to make everyone's life easier down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, other issues I think, um, are, I, I really think that like the whole process of, and I think you've just kind of tapped into that, it, the whole process of selling or transferring a Mac is a little more harrowing now, you know, because, uh, there are things you need to do. You know, you, you also need to log out of the iTunes and you need, there's just a bunch of stuff that needs to happen now. And this is all a price I'm totally willing to pay for the security we're getting, but it's something you need to be aware of. Yeah. It's, you gotta take your time and walk through the process, you know, in-house data recovery, in-house repair is obviously much harder when your SSDs are connected to a T2 or now an Apple Silicon chip where they have that hardware encryption. Uh, this is even for machines that you can take the SSDs out of. Most SSDs are, and most machines are soldered to the board. So data recovery in general has gotten harder on the Mac, but the T2 has made it even that more complicated on a machine where you could physically pull out the modules, like on the iMac Pro and the Mac Pro, where you could pull them out. Yeah. You can't do anything with them when they're outside of the machine. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember, I mean, we used to recommend to people if they, you know, if all else failed, go to drive savers where they yeah. 
put your drive in a clean room, I don't think that's sustainable anymore. I don't, I'm not sure that that would be of any use. Yeah, I don't know what tools they have, um, but it is definitely going to be more difficult than in the past. You know, and for a long time, uh, you know, again, back in like my consulting 2008, 2010 days, I had like a 500 gig, 7,200 RPM drive that I would just pull out of one MacBook and put in the next one, you know, as I moved machines around. And yeah. it was great because Mac OS doesn't really care because it knows about all the hardware. Uh, yeah. But those days are gone. And that does limit some types of use cases in certain places. So what do you think overall of the steps Apple's taken? I mean, they're, they're these we've described a lot of things in this show that are relatively new and all pointed at making the Mac more secure. How are they doing? I think overall they're doing a they're doing a good job. You know, I think that they are willing to make life harder for some people to make it better for the majority. And I understand if you're one of those Mac admins, it's it's frustrating. And I feel that as someone who lived in that world for a long time and as someone who owns a bunch of Macs. <laughs> um yeah. but I think for the the person who just buys a MacBook Air to use at home or to run their small business or take to school the bulk of Apple's customers. I think this stuff doesn't really get in the way most of the time and makes the Mac secure in ways that the user wouldn't think about. I think that's the impressive thing to me. Everyone kind of knows you need good passwords, right? Like, yeah, who have you said that to? And they're like, oh yeah, I know I'm going to get to it, right? Not everyone thinks, oh, what if someone takes my laptop and tries to connect to it via target disk mode or reinstall macOS from out from under me, right? So yeah. protecting venues in that people normal people don't think about is where apple has really shined in this area i think no i agree i I think they've come a long way and they they've addressed problems that i wasn't aware of like you know system integrity is an is a great example Mm -hmm. i never thought of that yeah you know and then they released the feature and then i start reading about i'm like oh wow i didn't realize there was a vulnerability there that i was never aware of yeah and now it's closed Mm mm-hmm and I'm sure there's probably more. I, I don't think there's at the end of the story. I suspect future WWDCs we're going to hear of new stuff. Um, Act Apple is actively trying to make the Mac as secure as the iPhone, which is no easy feat. No. And um, and you know I'm I'm good for it. You know I, I think that this is all stuff we want. And um, I do uh, I do like you. I feel bad for system you know engineers that have to install you know, 250 Macs with a bunch of software and no longer can just do it with a mirror. But, uh, you know, I think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, Apple should have tools for those people. I mean, yes, there should be some way should. to do that. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation, but I totally agree. Yeah. Well, uh, I, like you, I think uh, I am impressed with what they've done. I'm not sure where the holes are because they've got so deep down the stack that I'm not sure mere mortals would know where they are, but I'm sure there are still areas that they're pushing on. And um, I look forward to seeing future updates and, and seeing if they can continue to walk the line. But uh, overall, I think they've done a, a great job of the convenience versus security question. You know, a lot of these changes have happened without most users even being aware that they exist. That's right. And that's the way it should be. Right. I shouldn't have to think about when I get in my car, like, oh, how does the traction control work? How does the air, how do the airbags work? I just want to know that they're going to work when I need them. And your computer should be the same way. Now, you talked about the dialogues, you know, like the Catalina dialogues being an area of concern for you. You know, you you overwhelm the user. Are there any other areas as you sit here today that you're particularly concerned about with Mac security? 
I mean, I think Apple is doing more work in things like Safari to keep your data safe and private. I mean, there's a very blurry line between security and privacy, the way Apple talks about it. But I think, like, what if you're using Chrome or Firefox? Like, the web is a huge vector, and Apple's doing a lot in Safari, but I feel like some other users may be being left out a little bit because Apple's doing that in the browser level and not the system level. But again, like, uh, they're doing a pretty good job in Safari, and Safari's pretty good, so... They're definitely moving the ball forward in browsers, just not yeah. everyone's browser. Yeah, I think also they did a really good job over the last few years of trying to lock down email security, but it's the same problem. Yeah, you have to use their email app to get that. Sure. All right. Well, you know what, gang? Uh, I think you hopefully you know a little bit more about Mac security now. <laughs> if you don't, man, you're a smart guy. Uh, <laughs> you had a lot of knowledge coming into it. Um, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. We have a great active forum over at talk.macpowerusers.com. You might want to log in there. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of security-related discussion on today's episode. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors, Smile, Squarespace, and Indeed. And we will see you next week.